How's it going, everyone? This is part two of our podcast with Dan Fishman. Um, thank you for finding the second episode. Let's jump right in. Right. If we are no longer oppressed, we have all the same rights as any man in this country. And I said that at the bar Friday in front of a guy. And he's like, that really surprises me to hear you say that as a woman. And I'm like, why? I am not denied anything that you are given. Right. And, and right. a lot of times, look, I feel like we hear we hear about the old white male club, right? The, the white male privilege and shit. I really want to be part of that club. If someone could hook me up, please. Look, (laughs) there is such thing as female privilege. Well, wait a minute. I mean, there there is without a question moneyed privilege as well. Right, money is the is the privilege. Like that, that is the privilege to me. Exactly. But if you look at it in terms of demographics, white people in the United States dominate money, and we have for a long time. And and my people. We really dominate money. I can't deny that there's a privilege aspect for, you know, I, I was raised Jewish. Uh, it is, uh, a, we have a culture of literacy, but we also have a culture of uh, fiscal literacy. Uh, and Here's so- the thing that I saw, um, my great grandmother was Jewish. My grandmother was raised Jewish. I grew up working in Jewish country clubs. And here's the thing that I saw. Um, it's, it's not really a, a privilege issue. It's an issue no. of how community operates. Right. So if a business owner uh, who was a member of the Jewish country club that I was working at at 16 went bankrupt, something happened, his business failed. The other business owners in his community propped him up and helped put him back into another business. But isn't it's that what privilege is? Community. That's community, I would think. But I mean, when they say white privilege, what are they talking about? Aren't they saying white people help other white people? And that's community. Like, look, I get. What What is white privilege then? If that's not it. Well, I think that that becomes the discussion. Is the term white privilege gets pushed around a lot by people who don't take these discussions past the surface (laughs) level, and they can't tell you what the answer to that question is either. And look, to me, here's the thing. And if you want to send me hate mail, you know where our page is, Drunken Disordered Liberty. Hit the DM button. Send it. I'm here. We need to work on our response times anyway. Hit me up. (laughs) Um, Yeah, send it. Here's the reality for me. I reject the term white privilege because the word privilege implies something that is more than. Okay? I have never received more than. Because people assumed I was white. And if you were wondering why I say assumed, I am Russian, Jew, and Cherokee Indian. Okay? So drop back town and punt. I'm really good at You think I'm white. Surprise, motherfuckers, I'm not. Um, privilege implies more than. I've never received more than because of my skin tone. I have received more than because of my tits. So I will own fem- female, female privilege. I will. When I say I reject white privilege, I do not reject that people of color suffer from multitudes of forms of oppression. But uh, because one group is is oppressed does not naturally mean that another group is privileged. It simply means that another group is less oppressed. And that is very different than privilege to me. In my world, um, this is what these words mean. So yeah. if you're pissed, uh, for me, no, that's got to get really yeah, fun. I was just going to regurgitate the SJW 
definition, which I no longer feel like giving any credence to. So please, Daniel, go ahead. <laughs> well, so I would say that, you know, an absence of uh, or one group being more oppressed than everybody else means that the people who are not oppressed, they're privileged. That To me, that's the same thing. And I'll give you Dave Chappelle has a great sketch where he says, you know, this is the crazy thing about having a white friend. So my white friend, Chip, and just, you know, you know anything about Dave Chappelle, his best friend is this guy named Chip, comedy writer. Uh, I said, we are in New Jersey and we are just stoned off our asses. And like, we're so stoned, we have no idea where we are and we're really worried. I'm like, I don't know what to do. Chip's like, let's go ask the cop. And I'm like, what? And Chip goes up to the cop and he says, officers, we're really stoned and we're just trying to get home. Can you help us? And they're like, sure, you guys just want to go down right there. That's a tea station. And he's like, and Chappelle's like, oh, my God, that would never happen to me. Right. No black person would ever go up to a police officer and say, I'm really stoked. You don't go and up and start admitting stuff. You don't even exactly. I love that bit. Yeah, I know exactly what you're talking about. It's still, the man, privilege implies more than. And I don't think that because you're white, you're granted more human rights than you should be. Well, it's not it's not more than it's not more than you should be, but color, your human rights are probably trampled, definitely trampled. If you're the if you're the only person who the police don't beat, we agree that the standard is that the police shouldn't beat people. But if you're the only person who's not getting beaten, I would say that that feels like a that it should feel like a privilege. I get, just, I get it. You don't get beaten by the police. Right. Like, I get it. And I get the motivation behind the people who use the term and truly support the term, right? Like, I get what they're trying to say. I, I just, I reject that term. Can I, I, I think we need a better term, a more I, honest term. Jack, go ahead. Um, oh, how did you get muted, dude? I didn't did, get muted, did I? I, I must have like been clicking okay. on the screen. I'm sorry. Um, so I want, I want to bring this back a little bit here because we're talking about some really broad brushes here when we mm -hmm. talk about white privilege, because there's a lot of rednecks and look, that term actually means something. It's not just a Southerner. It is specifically a Scottish American who came over to America basically as a slave after the last Jacobite revolution. Really? I did not yes. know that. They were I called rednecks it. because they wore red scarves. It was part of their dress. Okay. I love hearing I thought redneck it had to do with sunburn. Yeah. I mean, so yes, that, that, is, that is something that it kind of means now, but redneck has to do with the red scarves that the Scottish wore. Um, typically the Scots Irish who were uh, exiles from in from Scotland after England cleared them out after uh, Bonnie Prince Charlie. So you're saying that the way we as, as Americans tend to use it now is technically cultural appropriation. Right? Uh, I would say it is the it would have been the equivalent of the N word for my people. Right. It's borrowing a slur, taking something like. I mean, think of anything that's ever been a slur, nerd, geek, um, mm -hmm. just because I'm trying to not be offensive. Somebody give me props for trying to not be offensive. <laughs> it's fucking first, right? Um, so it's borrowing that slur and using it to target somebody else because in your culture, in this individual's culture, that they know that this is a bad thing. 
So you're just borrowing that slur and, and shifting, it, shifting it. It kind of sounds like it evolved into... It, it, it was more slur. of an evolution. But so yeah. what I'm trying to say here is when you go into the poorest parts of the South, you are dealing with Scottish... Yeah, the Appalachian. The reason that's full of Celts is because it reminds us of home. Have you ever so, seen the movie called Songcatcher? It's sounds amazing. familiar, but no. it's, So it's this woman who's a musicologist. And what she does is she goes into the hills of Appalachia and she's able to find that they are singing songs from Scotland and from yeah. Ireland. These old folk songs that have been passed down from generation to generation. And actually they've been lost in the areas that have been inundated with American culture from television, et cetera. But you're exactly right. Those really poor areas of Appalachia were and still remain to be, uh, I mean, that is, that is the poorest of the poor. If, in, if you're an American and you live in an urban area, you can be somewhat poor, but the level of services that you have available by being in a city makes mm -hmm. you pretty well. But if you're in the middle of nowhere, nowhere, you got nothing. Yeah. And, and the thing that like, that's actually an area. I those, always think those are of. considered white people. And if, right. if that person starts talking about the struggles that they have, there will be, well, there will be right. people who are like, well, you've got white privilege. Well, well I mean, do they? they live in a shack yeah, like show me. Not have any access to health care or food on a regular basis. Appalachian is always the privilege. place that jumped to my mind. And I grew up in just outside of Detroit. Okay. So I have seen poverty. I promise you. Um, right. There is a music industry based on the poverty of Appalachia. That's what country <laughs> music is all about. <laughs> yeah. I mean, when we talk about, when we use these broad brushes, there's something I always like to say to people when I catch that broad brush stuff going on is that broad brushes are tools we give to children. I work with children. We give children broad brushes because they don't, they don't have the finesse, right? They're not equipped right. with the fine motor school skills and the finesse to use a fine brush, but we are adults. Well, and so time to put away the broad brushes. And, and that actually is probably the, the, a great point because if you think about it, how broad is a brush to say white people? Because right, right? does that you're talking everything from Mongolia to Ireland? <laughs> exactly. Are you talking about Jewish people? Are you talking about Russians, Eastern Europeans, English? Right? Those really tall people from Sweden. Uh, you know, are they all in the same right. thing? Because that's yeah. really Italians and, and Italians and Swedes are not the same race. I'm sorry, right? They're not. And, yeah, exactly. I mean, you know, certainly in Boston, you know, we still have lots of lots of uh, old reminders of the uh, the bias when the Irish and the Italians were, you know, second and third class citizens. There's signs all over the place. Well, to you know? be fair, the Irish, you know, kind of, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> Fucking swamps. No, Dan's right. Just look at the whole conversations around slavery, right? When we talk about slavery, we're all libertarians. We're all like, what the hell do you mean you're going to like force somebody to serve you? This is a problem. But to us, to us, indentured servitude is not any different. But to a large part of, of our citizenry, a large part of the other members of humanity, it is very different. And I well, struggle so with that. There, right? there were different kinds of slavery. And slavery yep. historically has meant different things. And I think it's fair to say that Black slavery in America was one of the worst forms of slavery oh, clearly. in in history. Um, but if you're Scottish, you would point back to 800 years of serfdom and say, "Yeah, but what about us?" 
Yeah, or if you're Jewish. I was going to say we're right. coming up. We're coming up on Passover. Uh, <laughs> I have um, I, on my mother's side, we're Cherokee. Right. And right. so here's something people don't know. I I think that everybody thinks if you have a CDIB card, a, a certified degree of Indian blood card, and you're on the rolls, you get some benefits, and you get people have this belief that this is the case. And with the Cherokee, that isn't always true. So that tribe split. The government came into the Cherokee in Georgia um, where my great, great grandfather owned a plantation, a cotton plantation um, uh, as a native American. Right. And, and they came in and said, um, give up your land, give us your land. And we're going to move you to this reservation. And here's the deal. And we want you to sign. And the chief of the Cherokee tribe at the time said, no, I don't think we're going to do this. But a group of elders split off on their own and took a, many members of the tribe with them because they rightfully believed that we might as well sign now and get the best deal we can because if we don't, they will take everything we have and kill us. Yeah. And they were right. So they did. They split off. They were moved peacefully to the reservation. When we talk about Cherokees on the Trail of Tears, what we're talking about is the split half of the tribe who refused to sign and then were marched many times to their death along this trail, right? And that half of the tribe is not entitled to federal benefits because they did not sign the treaty. Wow. I think what, we, what we're really getting at here is humans are fucking terrible to each other. Hell yeah. Historically. And, and every race can point back to a time in history where they're like, we were really getting shafted at this point. Right. Um, Every one of us. We should just be better to each other. Come on now. Right. There is no culture. There is no so, ethnicity. Right. So we stop playing, having a race, the oppression race. Like That's the thing, right? Fucking people has been enslaved and has enslaved others. So I think, I think, awful, I think if we're going to say that, though, if, if we're going to say right. we need to stop having the oppression race, then we, we should all be working consistently to, to end, end oppression. oppression yeah. In all of its forms. I think that all of us are. Right, right. right. We are. We just need help. We, we need everybody watching to get active in some way, um, even if it's just sending an email somewhere, right? Even um, if it's just subscribing. So that's like a critical thing. Writing letters to the editor is one of the real forms of activism that amplifies your voice. Facebook, you're almost always in closed circles unless you're one of the very few people that is widely read. But a letter to the editor gets your opinion in front of old people who still read newspapers and vote. So informing them by writing letters to the editor is a critical piece of activism. That's something that we've been working on a lot uh, in Massachusetts. My sort of tenure recently as the executive director of Massachusetts, we try to help people write letters to the editor saying, you know, here's a couple paragraphs, you rework them into your words. Great, you're doing a good job. Now let's find an issue that's happening in your town where we can take these core components of liberty and say, we believe this. And we have, so Massachusetts, like we're crazy blue, right? We refer to California as those fascist red staters. We have six towns that have banned uh, single use plastic water bottles. So you can't exactly right. It's insane. So right. <laughs> so and if you're in the middle of nowhere and you need a, a bottle of water, right? It really is crazy. And I mean, these are like super wealthy towns. In fact, one of them is Concord, where 
Brendan oh. Fraser went to school in uh, school ties. So <laughs> nice to bring it all full circle. Uh, but so we had somebody write a letter to the editor of that, and it got published. And then it got picked up from that person writing it in the Concord patch. And the Boston Globe said, hey, here are the six towns. And they quoted his letter of saying, you know, how ridiculous is it that my shop, my gas station, which is 100 yards from Acton, where people can buy bottled water, is now suffering because people don't stop to buy gas at my gas station because I can't sell them a bottle of water. And of course, it's ridiculous. But that's the sort of thing that we can fight for liberty by getting people to just write letters. And that's so much more than writing on Facebook or anything else. Yeah, it's right. really easy. People should start writing their representatives as well as editors and people who publish. Yeah. <laughs> well, and don't just write them. Call them and protest. Yes. Who wants to call the White House and file a complaint? Because guess what? You can call them collect. Collect calls. Wow. The White House cannot refuse that collect call. Um, and unless you call and get really harassing and you get put on a list, right? But if you're calling collect to <laughs> make a complaint, you can do that. Um, you can write directly to the White House. You can do that too. Um, okay. and so, sorry, this makes me think of a really, really funny story because, you know, they do work for us. My grandfather has had no issue telling any representative what exactly they need to do and how. So in the 80s, I believe Reagan was president at the time him and my grandmother went to DC for a little trip and they decided to tour the White House like you do. Well, my grandfather demanded to speak to the president because he had some things he needed to say to him. Um, him and my grandmother were detained by Secret Service for several hours and questioned separately. He thought nothing of it. He was, you know, the president worked for us. My grandfather had some things he wanted to discuss with him, and uh, he didn't understand why he wasn't available for that. That's like that's my life story. I when I was, mom, if you're watching, I I love you, and I'm so very 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 sorry you got stuck with me. Um, I. I knew that our heritage on my father's side was, was Soviet, right? And it was in the middle of the Cold War, um, but I was 12. Um, so I started writing letters to every Russian embassy in the United States, trying to get somebody to answer my letters so that I could find out some more about my family, um, which our mail, my mom, my mom would open our mail and our mail would come in redacted. And she was like, what is going on? What's going on with our mail? Um, and then we get agents at the door who are like, can we talk about these letters? I was 12, um, but it was a really big deal here. And I, like, you guys probably don't remember. Dan will remember. It was probably in the middle of the Cold War. They were probably like, oh my God. It was I remember. Cold War. Um, this is the kind of stuff I've always done. If, if Everett I Farm also remembers. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> if I needed an answer, I just would go and get it. Um, I'm not afraid to walk into a representative's office and just sit. Um, at some point, you yeah. could potentially face harassment charges, so be no. careful. Um, but my first arrest was at a political <laughs> protest in 1989. Nice. I mean, I, uh, yeah, you, you know, that the so I was, uh, I went to school in England uh, in. Uh, what, what they now call a gap year, gap year uh, from 85 to 86. And we took a trip to Russia, my, the school that I was in England in. And 
it was, you know, still uh, the height of the Cold War. Uh, uh, oh, I can't even think of his name right now. The guy who actually took down the wall, Gorbachev, was had Gorbachev. just come into power, right? Gorbachev had just come into power. So the first night that we get there, we fly in and we're flying Aeroflot from London. It's a terrible flight. The airplane, airplane's terrible. The food is disgusting. Everything you would expect from, you know, a communist system run airline. We get in and we're going to try to land in Moscow and we don't land. And we can tell that we're circling and circling and circling. Finally, we land and we see that as we land, the problem is that there's no power at the airport. Like somehow the airport is blacked out. So what they did was they drove a bunch of trucks on to either side of the runway and turn their headlights on. And that's how we were, they were able to see to land us. And I'm like, welcome to the USSR. Yeah. And, but, and that was, right. that was when things were good. Yeah. Well, <laughs> right. Exactly. Things were, were good. But so we get to the hotel that night and we stayed in this hotel called the cosmos in Moscow. Uh, and there was certain hotels that only foreigners could stay in cosmos was one of them. So, we get there and we're exhausted because of this terrible plane flight, stuff like that. We get into the room and I turn on the radio just to hear Russian music. The radio's broken. And I say to my roommate, you know, typical Russians, I can't believe how low tech this country is. They probably bought this radio from the Japanese. It broke and nobody knew how to fix it. So we went to sleep. And when we woke up in the morning, there was a new radio in the room. So not just that they've been listening to us, but they decided to show us that they could enter the room without us waking up and replace the radio. Oh so I, uh, I have been really fortunate in my life. So to you're be able saying to... that they rolled a 20 on their sneaky die. Uh, <laughs> yes. and, like I've, I've been fortunate to meet and be able to learn from some really incredible individuals. And one of them um, was a Soviet dissident, Alexander Ginsburg. And I remember when I met him, I was 14 and I was about three inches taller than him. Right, and I'm five two. Oh my god! Oh wow! This is a little bitty frail guy who is speaking French with a Russian accent, and his interpreter is French and has a French accent, and is interpreting into English. Right? It was a crazy night. Um, <laughs> at one point, this little tiny, frail, kind, sweet, loving man um, was number one on the KGB's most wanted list to be considered armed and dangerous and executed. Wow site because he published an illegal book of poetry it's a poetry magazine it was called syntax and it was anti-government poetry right and yes. anti-propaganda pushback and alexander this dangerous criminal mind um was naive enough to put his name and address on the back of these as he was producing them because he was trying to find other like-minded individuals so the kgb kicked in his house picked him up um, at one point, let him out, and he wrote everything that he ex had experienced in the gulags down. He wrote it all, and he smuggled it out of the wow. country into France, um, where it was published. It was a book called The White Book. But then he went back to the KGB and said, hey, my buddy is still in here, and um, he also is a political prisoner, and he needs to be let out. And you guys need to let me out, let him out, because if you don't, I'm going to publish this book. He didn't tell him it was already out. The KGB didn't know it was already out. So they immediately threw him back into the gulag system. And he sat there until the U.S. traded two Soviet spies for seven Soviet dissidents. 
at which point he came here um, and didn't know what was happening to him until he got here. He was blindfolded until he got into the hotel in New York. Yeah, those spy games that were being played then were crazy, crazy. My high school roommate, uh, his father was a spy. Uh, he worked G2 Army Intelligence. And uh, he also had the misfortune to be six foot four and albino. And so uh, he was pretty recognizable, but he ran a lot of other spies. And he spoke fluent German and Turkish. And so that was his base of operation. He would go back and forth between them. And he just had the craziest stories, uh, like the things that the Russians and the Americans did at that point in time to try to spy on each other. Unbelievable. But the really amazing thing about it was they, the, both, those, both of us, both the Russians and the Americans, perfected the art of false flag. And oh, yeah. read those stories. You'll every time now, every time I hear about something happening on the news, I'm like, I could really easily be a false flag. Like, yeah. I mean, for example, I think all the time about Hillary's emails. I'm like, why would the Russians do it? And, and I might say this as a, as a Jewish person. I'm still convinced that the Israelis did it because it makes so much more sense for them to do it than for anybody else. And to blame the Russians because, you know, Obama was terrible for Israel. Right. And they oh, yeah. knew they knew what Trump was going to be. And so they're like, well, hell, we can well, just take down the Democrats. So the the only thing I would say to that, though, is Clinton is really good for Israel. Clint, Clinton would have been better, but uh, I don't think I think that they liked where they were going. Right. I mean, yeah, I don't think she would have been better than Trump. I don't think she would have oh, moved okay. to the embassy. Oh, I, uh, I guess if the, if it comes down to the embassy, yes, that makes more sense. Right. I and I think what scared them about Clinton is the same thing that scared a lot of Americans about Clinton is that we we knew without a doubt what she was going to do. Right. <laughs> but, but then the other thing, too, was that, remember, Obama sent his political team to try to stop Netanyahu from getting elected. Right. Uh, so you know, I mean, we were directly play. meddling in the Israeli election. So Clinton would play the Democratic Party game, though. Right. So essentially, whatever the party wanted, she was going to want. Um, whatever the donors wanted, she was going to want. They knew with Trump, um, it's a different appeal, right? Well, I, I just think, I just think it, was pro, it was quid pro quo. You know, right? The Israelis said, look, you decided you want to meddle in our election. We're going to meddle in your election. Take it. Yeah. And, and it happened. I still can't get my head around what the left was thinking when they gave us Hillary Clinton as an option. Like, oh, it, it was it was her turn. Thinking. So they have, I mean, the Democrats have this culture of it's your turn. And so uh, my congressman right now is a guy named Seth Moulton, Democrat. Uh, he's not a terrible guy. Uh, he certainly will be running for president someday. Good looking combat Marine, first soldier into Baghdad, uh, Harvard Business School. Called back to active service by General Petraeus. And he's a Democrat? He's a Democrat, yeah. Wow, that's like a <laughs> yeah. unicorn for that. Well, that, that's why I'm saying he is. Uh, he will run for president. And people are already oh, yeah. talking about the fact that he'll run for president one day. Um, and more than that, he's actually relatively independent. So he was the one who led the movement to not have Nancy Pelosi be the Speaker of the House for the Democrats. Wow. And the reason why... Well, With his career. Yeah, well, the why. <laughs> so part of the reason why is because, so when he ran, so the reason I know him so well is I ran for the same seat in 2012 as a libertarian. Uh, 
And this is how Massachusetts politics is so different. So the Republican that I ran against was an outmarried gay man who was pro-choice. That was the Republican. The Democrat was pro-life and his wife had just gone to jail for 30 days for money laundering. Now in Massachusetts, that's kind of a badge of honor, but uh, <laughs> because she didn't rat on anybody. But so it was a crazy campaign and actually happened to be the most expensive campaign in the country that year because the Republicans thought they were going to win. Uh, each side spent $4 million. In the oh, end, wow. yeah, it was oh, insane. In the end, the, uh, the Democrat won by 4,000 votes. I got 17,000 votes. So they called me spoiler. But Good for you. Yeah, I, well, I was, I'm glad I spoiled that election. Uh, but the next cycle, Seth Moulton uh, wanted to run. And the Secretary of State, Bill Galvin, who's a Democrat as well, came to him and said, it's not your turn. You can't run. And he's like, how can you tell me it's not my turn? He's like, I'm a Democrat, right? I mean, I, you're saying it's not my turn because I haven't been working for political campaigns. I was off in fucking Iraq. <laughs> how can you tell me it's not my turn? <laughs> You're saying that you're saying Hillary Clinton is the Democrats' Bob Dole. Right, they, right. They, they it was her turn. Nobody else to do it. And so, interestingly enough, the same thing happened to uh, Ayanna Presley, who is uh, beat Mike Capuano <laughs> out of Massachusetts. Ayanna Presley is she's the uh, well-educated, smart uh, Alexandria Ocasio Cortez. Uh, she <laughs> uh, is there such a thing? Well, she she pulled off she pulled off a comparably big upset. She beat, okay. she beat Mike so, Capuano uh, in the primary, who was a uh, 18, 18 year veteran and the most left wing progressive uh, congressman from Massachusetts. And so that's saying something. But he was an old white man and it had become a majority minority district. So Ayanna Presley beat him. Uh, and she's she's a very smart, powerful person. I, I certainly respect all that stuff about her. However, they told her. It wasn't her term as well. And in fact, Capuano went to her and said, hey, you know what? We think you could be the congressperson here in about six years. Mike wants to serve until he's 70 years old. And then you come and support us right now. And then we will essentially give you the seat. And so the so big, this happens the in, in the Nebraska. Saying, we will pick for you. Exactly. Right. Exactly. So, two things. One, uh, Nebraska Democrat or Nebraska Republicans do a lot of the same shit because yeah. we have the same kind of stranglehold on this state, uh, like with the Republican Party that you guys have with the Democrat Party. Yeah, whatever your state, whatever party is con controlling your state, um, they're doing the same thing. Right. No, it doesn't really matter where you live. It doesn't really matter if it's Democrat or Republican. You know, Dan said something about running as a libertarian and being the spoiler. So... <laughs> Again, you you know how to get a hold of me for the hate mail, right? So here's here's my thing to old party members, voters, and candidates. Um, I hope we're always the spoiler. Always. Right. If you want us to stop being the spoiler, stop giving us shitty fucking candidates. Yeah. Well, and I mean the other thing about that, and and now have you guys had the ranked choice voting talk yet? Because uh, no. no, I did a I did a school project on that actually for my, one of my speech classes this last semester. All right, well, I can actually push myself off as an expert on this. I testified about it uh, at the New Hampshire State House. Uh, I go around Massachusetts building up support about it right now. The nice thing, and so we just had an election that I think is the 
the mathematical proof of ranked choice voting. Uh, you might, might have heard about it. I posted about it as well. So in Fall River, the mayor was uh, indicted for uh, being handsy as well as uh, embezzling money. Terrible guy. Okay. So they had two questions on the ballot. The first one was, should we recall the mayor? And the second one was, if we recall the mayor, who should the new mayor be? So the recall vote succeeded. 61% voted to recall him. However, he got his name on the ballot for the next election, along with four other candidates, and he was reelected with 35% of the vote. So it's just like Detroit then. Second place candidate got 34%. Yep. How do you get 34% and win? For Kirkpatrick, it's Kirkpatrick. Because the vote was split between four other candidates. But clearly the will of the people was 61% voted to recall this guy. If there hadn't been four other candidates to split the vote, he would not have won. And that is, for me, that is the picture of why ranked choice voting is better than our other alternatives. I mean, it's essentially instant runoff. Uh, and it gives you the option. It gets rid of the idea that anybody's ever a spoiler because your vote can't hurt anybody else. So better than an approval voting. I know Blake Huber from um, the approval voting ticket, and I've yeah. talked a bunch of times, and he says that with, with approval voting, voter satisfaction goes up, but the outcomes rarely differ enough that it would change. So here's why I don't like approval voting, and I bet I can convince all of you with this one sentence. If you had approval voting in 2016, you would have to say that you liked Gary Johnson the same amount that you liked Jill Stein. Yeah, exactly. That That's the problem with <laughs> approval voting. So you have ranked choice voting and you say, okay, these are my people in order. And the nice thing about ranked choice voting is that the person that you're voting for, number one, number two, number three, you're all voting for them. Whoever you vote for last, you're actually voting against that person. You're saying anybody but this guy. And that's what happened in Maine. So Poliquin, the Republican, there are four candidates running. Poliquin, the Republican, Golden, the Democrat, uh, a woman who should have been a libertarian, but for whatever reason, she didn't run as a libertarian. And then another independent. Poliquin gets 45%. Golden gets 42%. The libertarian gets 5%, 2% to the other independent. So nobody wins on the first ballot. Nobody has over 50%. They end up throwing out, when I say throwing out, getting rid of on the ballot the person with 2% and the person with 5% because neither one of them had enough that they would make somebody win by themselves. So after that, they apply all the other votes. And at the end of it, the Democrat has 52% of the vote. And the reason why, what that means, that not only he has 52% of the vote, 52% of the people said anybody but the Republican. We will vote for anybody but the Republican. And they moved through the candidates and they eliminated all the other candidates. And at the end of it, so he had some second place votes and he had some third place votes. But 52% of the people had the Republican as their fourth place vote. And that, I think, is a good solution that the per- the candidate gets elected is the one they say, look, we can live with these other people, but that guy's an asshole. And one of the other things that happened that was awesome in this election, because they had ranked choice voting in Maine, Eric Brakey, uh, who was a Republican, endorsed by, uh, and I'll come up to, professional, to uh, proportional voting in a second, Jess. Eric Brakey, who was a Republican who ran for Senate in Massachusetts, 
went to the Libertarian Party of Maine convention. And he yeah, said to them, Brakey's not horrible. He's endorsed by Young Americans for Liberty. And he went to the Libertarian Party convention. He said, Libertarians of Maine, I'm here to ask you to vote for the Libertarian candidate for Senate because I self-identify as a Libertarian on a lot of issues. And it's really important to me that people know how powerful the Liberty movement is here in Maine. So please vote for the Libertarian number one. But I'm here to ask for your second place vote. In case the Libertarian candidate doesn't win, I want you guys to get a Liberty candidate elected. And that's me. Here are the six issues that I agree with the Libertarian Party on. Here are the three issues that I don't agree with the Libertarian Party on. Now, the third person in the race is a Democrat. Here are the eight issues that you don't agree with the Democrat on. Here's the one issue that you do agree with the Democrat on. So please, Libertarians, vote Libertarian first and vote for me, Eric Brakey, second. When you have campaigns like that, that changes the way we run elections in the country. And I agree with that. The idea that we don't have to be enemies in the election process, that you really want to chase after a second place vote. There he is. I, after, after the Billy Hunt campaign, uh, I'm, Billy ran a great race. But boy, I really thought he was going to win. I haven't been that disappointed since my own, <laughs> my own race back in November. But uh, we have a candidate running in Andover right now. And uh, his name's Alex Bromberg. He's running for selectman. And it is a select, they get to vote for two candidates. And so it's, it's not quite ranked choice voting. It's actually, it's a, it's a version of approval, but there's a Republican, a Democrat and a Libertarian. And so he is going to both the Republican and the Democratic events and say, look, give me your second place votes. Don't bullet vote, which is what you guys normally do. You bullet vote because you don't want to hurt your other guy. But if you vote for both the Republican and me, or when he goes to Democratic event, you vote for the Democrat and me, you're doing yourself a favor because you're keeping the candidate that you hate the most out of city council. So let's do it. Right. So maybe it can happen. Great idea. So uh, yeah, Alex Bromberg, great chance. Uh, AlexForAndover.com to plug his website. <laughs> so Jess uh, Mears brought up the idea of proportional uh, and proportional. I actually like a lot of the ideas behind proportional election systems. The idea is that let's say we were to look at the presidential race and uh, libertarians got, I'm going to round us up to 5%. Uh, I think it was four and a half, wherever it was, but let's call it 5%. That would mean that we should have 5% of the seats in Congress. Other countries do this. It's actually a very interesting idea because in that way, your voice is proportionally represented as opposed to the fact that when you say I'm 5% and so I don't win any race because I'm 5% all over the place. There is a, there's a really good idea that we should do that. I don't see how we amend the system right now to get proportional representation in the United States. I think our, our entire political system is set up to not do that, like specifically well, not do that. That's kind of what I was going to ask you about ranked choice is how do you see that? Sure, it's being implemented in smaller races, municipal races, and in smaller races, but how do you see that um, being implemented in large races? maybe even potentially a presidential race. What well, does that do to the primary system in this country? So the primaries, remember, are controlled by the parties. The primaries have nothing to do with us, the we the people, uh, except for the fact that because of some bullshit, they got us to pay for them. But other than that, the primaries are however they want to do them. That's why some states have caucuses and some states have uh, an actual primary election or 
I don't know how your state does you, uh, who the delegates are that you elect for the libertarian candidate, but Massachusetts, the state, uh, we elect them at the state convention. We don't yeah. have a primary process at all. We have so, a, pro a voting primary in Nebraska, but it's not binding. Exactly. Okay, so we, have, we have a primary in Oklahoma, and here's how it works in Oklahoma. Donald Trump could move to Oklahoma, yeah. register to vote as a libertarian, and run for <laughs> libertarian and win, and there's nothing we can do about it. Yeah, see, that's not good. Although, actually, there is something you could do about it. He, they, he won't get to send any delegates to Austin because the national affiliate, the way that we bind it, uh, and the, you know, we, this, those of you who know the Oregon scenario, uh, the national affiliate is whoever national says it is. And those are the ones who get to choose the delegates no matter right. what. He wouldn't get to send any delegates to a convention for like our POTUS nomination, but right. he could still serve as governor in Oklahoma spewing Donald Trump rhetoric and telling people it's libertarian. And there's nothing right. to do about it. Yeah, I mean, that's... That, that's a big problem for me. I see candidates every day. Well, um, ex but, I mean, he kind of did that to the Republicans, too. Yeah, okay, that's true. <laughs> I, and, and I like it when it's them. I just don't want it ever happening to us. I want all bad things for those parties. Um, right. I do. I, I, I am an that's unabashed partisan. And, and I get it. And, and I get that that's collective. And I don't fucking care because I like the people I'm in a collective with. Right. I do. And it's a voluntary collective. And libertarians are cool fucking people. I get outside of libertarian circles. I get really stabby really fast. Like, I don't get it. <laughs> yeah. I don't like uh, the way that society as a whole kind of tends to operate. Right. I don't. Um, if I did, I wouldn't do what I do. Yeah. I'd sit at home and get high and drink a beer and be stupid and happy. Um, I'm, I'm, but I'm not. Right. You know, that's a fascinating point. We don't give ourselves enough. Well, it's tough. Some libertarians give themselves too much credit. But for the people who go out and walk the road, it's difficult at times. And we need to acknowledge that and amongst ourselves. Like, Aaron, you made this amazing offer to come out and knock doors for any candidate. Oh my God. Yes. It, it was, yeah, and I'll be there. I mean, you may have to help me get there, but I will be there. Right. But stuff like that, when we do things like that, it's so wonderful and it's so valuable and it's us working together. So one of the things that, you know, we have this advantage that all of new England, not counting Maine uh, is smaller than Nebraska. So we're able to travel to support the other States. And so, like, on the Billy Hunt campaign, a lot of Massachusetts guys were there. Connecticut guys were there one day. We went up to, to New Hampshire. I talked about Alex Bromberg, right? Justin O'Donnell, who I, I grant you he's the regional rep, but he came down and did a standout with uh, Alex Bromberg last Saturday and took some great photos as well. Yeah. Our poor regional rep is, like, eight hours away. How far? He's past St. Louis. Where does he live? He's in Illinois. Oh, and he's past yeah. St. Louis, so it's a good eight hours away from us. Yeah, well, like our, our Nebraska, you could travel eight hours and still be in the same state. Yeah. <laughs> so I mean, John Phillips is your regional rep, right? Yeah. He oh, works his ass off for you guys. He does. John's watching. Yeah, he Hi, has. John. He has been on tonight. Uh, so here's the thing: we have been going for an hour and a half. Uh, Dan, we want to have you back at some point if you're willing, because this was a this was a great yeah. talk. Uh, I'm burning out, and I think Trey is. Too.
<laughs> I'm tired. Yeah, I I'm tired. Been up since five a.m. Yeah, I'm on the East Coast, you wussies. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but you don't have to work with toddlers tomorrow. That's true. I don't. I work at a bank, so I I basically have to work with toddlers tomorrow. <laughs> and I'm a lazy ass who normally gets up at eight o'clock. So five a.m. for me is like a gut punch. Fair enough, guys. Yeah. I'm gonna go watch the rest of Broadchurch. That's my plan. Right. So, we love you, thank, thank you, you so everyone much. for tuning in this week. Uh, thank you to Dan for jumping in like after the last second. And right. uh, we had a great, like this had no, no right to be as good of a show as it was, but right. I'm probably going to split this one up on, on anchor even so we can double tap on this one. So uh, love you guys. Thanks for watching. We'll see you next week.